Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. I am here today with Psychedelic Guide, Group Ceremony Facilitator, and Microdose Coach, Jill Weiss. And we are going to talk about changing your dream. I know a lot of you out there probably had a dream when you were 18, 19, maybe even younger, and you chased it. Or maybe you put it on the shelf to chase later. And then somewhere along the way, your dream changed. That first dream didn't fit anymore. And so how do we go about changing that? So we're going to talk about how Jill did that and dig into all kinds of juicy stuff today. So, Jill, why don't you tell me and all the people, all the people, us, tell us a little bit about what it is that you're doing now. Yeah, thanks for asking. My, I work in the Bay Area and I have people travel to me from all over the country, sometimes outside of the country. The bulk of my practice is doing one-on-one -on -one work with using plant medicine ceremonially and therapeutically. I do a really powerful sort of process holding the medicine and the client through transformative yeah, process um, that involves pretty thorough preparation a ceremony with the medicine, and then quite a bit of integration, right? Uh, along with that, I also do microdose coaching, and I lead group ceremonies. So this March, I will be in Jamaica doing a couple of group ceremonies there where psilocybin is currently legal. So that's sort of uh, the bulk of what I do in my practice. Awesome. And I have Stepped into all kinds of, those of you that know me know I've done all the things on my healing journey. <laughs> I've sat <laughs> ayahuasca ceremonies. I've done psilocybin ceremonies. I've done microdosing. I've done all the things. And, and there's definitely some value. One of the things that I really love that you say that you do and that you spend a lot of time on is the integration. I feel that it's a big piece of what Huge. is missing when we're talking about psychedelic therapy. Yes, you can have these great epiphanies and these mind-shifting 
shifts on your view and your experience of the world? And then how do you put it into practice? How do you actually take that and move in, move your new insight and your new view of the world into this world that we all have to navigate that some people call reality? (laughs) I mean, this medicine, exactly. I love what you're saying. This medicine is different than what we traditionally as Westerners think about medicine, right? We think about aspirin. We think about penicillin, right? Those medicines, it's all about the medicine. In other words, we say, I have a headache. I have an infection. Fix it. So we take the medicine and it either fixes it or it doesn't. If it fixes it, then we're done. If it doesn't fix it, we take more or we try a different one. But it's all of the emphasis is on the medicine. With this, the way I hold the plant medicine and the way I think the plant medicine really can create the most impact in someone's life is when they meet the medicine. And what I mean by that is um, you, you take this medicine and it shows you something. It teaches you something about yourself that you didn't know before. And there's a calling force for you to support that new knowing with action. What am I going to actually do to create meaningful, lasting change? And the medicine shows you that. It inspires you. And then it's your job to meet it and show up and do the work. So, you know... I like to distinguish it because we're using the same word and yet we're holding it very, very differently. And and I'll say one other thing is I'm a huge proponent of therapy and I'll talk about that, that therapy is sort of throughout my story. I've been in therapy on and off since I was quite young and God knows I'll need it till the day I die. (laughs) But, uh, you know, there's this thing where you, you can do all this work in therapy or in life looking at your issues and kind of talking about them, being able to recognize them seeing them when they, these patterns, when they show up in your life and, and being like, oh, there it is. And then creating tools to gently kind of try to intervene, right? This is all really powerful work. With this medicine, it's not just pointing at it and talking about it and thinking about it. You suddenly know it in your bones. It's a different kind of knowing, right? I'm sure you've experienced this. It's like, it's not, the epiphanies we get on this medicine, it's not something we hadn't really seen before. It's that now we can't unsee it. It's not a heady concept that you just kind of are holding lightly with a therapist. It's like, oh, I get it. This changes everything. Yeah. One of the things that I I think for me personally, I've had more ceremonial experiences with ayahuasca than I have with psilocybin. And in that, what I've noticed in the communities, in the circles of people that do it a lot, is they just keep going and going and going and going. And they keep like, oh, I'm going to do another ceremony. And y'all that are listening, the stuff isn't fun. Ceremony is not a fun experience. This is no party. (laughs) But but. What I see them doing is going over and over again and getting the same messages over Mm -hmm. and over again. Not doing the work. In my experience, I remember one of my first, like, I did a couple ceremonies and I did some journal writing and, and I had these epiphanies and these things that I saw. And... And then the medicine didn't call to me. I always kind of try to listen to my intuition. So the medicine did not call to me for a long period of time. And when it finally did, 
And I was sitting there before a ceremony, looking back at the journals, the things I had written of the last one. And I was like, oh, aha. Here it is the again. Medicine did not call because it was not until now that I had integrated the lessons of the previous time before I was. Yeah. So I had to integrate and really embody the lessons that I was shown before the medicine called me again. And I see a lot of people that are not doing that. They are just keep going, going and chasing that feeling of what it feels like to be at the end of it when you have it sort of in your body and not doing the actual work to get there. Absolutely. I think there's a term for it. It's called spiritual bypassing. You know, you can do anything, the healthiest of things, and still be bypassing the actual root issue. And I think by going into these ceremonies repeatedly without integrating, without doing the work, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's in, in some ways, you might look at it as a way to distract from the real issue to say, well, I'm doing this work, right? I'm showing up, but, but you're not showing up. And it's funny, I just had a client an hour ago that was sitting there saying, I, I've, met this woman in, in, in one of my circles, one of my medicine circles, and she does medicine more than anyone I know. And when she's in the medicine space, it's like she is, you know, she's, she's going to Peru to do the three months training in the jungle to become a shaman, to be able to pour this, this sacred medicine. And yet she's like, I see her, the way she shows up in her life. It's, it, it lacks integrity. It, it's not, somehow it's disconnected from what's showing up in her journeys. And yet she's taking the medicine more than anyone she knows. And it's like, like anything, right? Just because you do the thing doesn't mean you are the thing. And that's okay. That's where that person is. But I think it doesn't require doing a ton of medicine. It requires showing up and doing the work. And if you work with a guide like me, that's what you're going to be moved to do. Because I'm not going to let people just show up and and get high and move on. I'm going to call them out on it. And, um, and that's a big part of what I set up when, when we discuss whether or not this is a good fit. It's like, are you expecting this to cure you? Do you think that there is a cure? Because in my, the way I hold this is there is no such thing as healed. There is only healing and we are all on this spectrum of healing. And what's the rush? Let's just keep going. The silver bullet, the infamous silver bullet. silver bullet. Okay. So we've kind of discussed a little bit about where you've ended up, but this was not where you started. Not where I started. Not no. where you started. No. And and so much about the people that love to listen to my show, the journey of how you get from where you were to where you are now in that place that's purposeful for you, part of being the wolf, being who you are born to be. And I think a lot of people that are called to have a powerful purpose and have powerful careers that are really great fits and they want to help and impact the world, I think there's a common thread that comes with a lot of them is the very, in the beginning, they had this feeling like they were different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us how, look, tell us a little bit about that portion. Well, 
the beginning yeah, portion. The beginning. The beginning. Yeah, I've always felt like I was different. And just as I hear myself say it, it almost sounds like a cliche because since it's my reality, I assume it's everyone's reality. And I know it is a lot of people's realities because guess what? We are all different. Mm-hmm. And I think when you take this medicine, you also realize we're all the same, right? Um, but I grew up in Texas and my parents are they're pretty square. And I'd say that I was more of a circle or a triangle or a star or something. They always kind of looked at me and a very loving home, right? I'm not talking conservative, like Republican conservative, not that it really matters. They were liberals, but they were they're just a rule following type, right? In a beautiful way. And it served our family, but it, um, it's not who I am at my core. I always saw the it's like I would always zoom into what the what the boundaries were and all I would fixate on what was beyond the boundary. So the rules were very fascinating for me because I always wanted to see what happened when I broke them and what was outside of the rules. And just this fundamental philosophy of of being was created tension in the house, right? Like where did this come from? <laughs> I remember when I was really young, I dressed up for Halloween as an artist and I said, well, this is who I am for Halloween. From now on, I'm an artist. I also have this very distinct memory. So I was in probably kindergarten in the 80s, right? Not to date myself, but there you have it. And this was like the big, the beginning of the, not the beginning of the drug war, but this was a juicy moment in the drug war. And uh, the war against drugs, I should say. And my school counselor came in to talk to my grade. I don't know if I was in first or second grade. And she brought in Duso the Dolphin. And Duso would tell you what to do, right? And what not to do. And Duso the Dolphin was telling us about all of the drugs not to do. And I remember sitting there all cross-legged, listening to each word come off of her lips. Marijuana. It was like when I heard these words coming out of her mouth, I felt like this genie was like tempting me, like seducing me forward. And it's funny looking back because I think the other kids in class, well, not all of them clearly, but many of them were probably like, oh God, I'll never do that. What is that? And so I wonder what was it in me that said, I got to know more about that. Like, that sounds amazing. I think there's a part of me that always wanted to transcend sort of this strip mall. You know, I grew up in a, in a suburb in, in Texas, just sort of this conservative strip mall. A, a lot of bigotry I felt around me as somebody who was like an artistic, creative, countercultural type. And maybe this allure was around being able to see beyond it. I was pulled out of my classes at for a while because they were trying, I guess they saw that I had some, I was a bit smarter than some of the kids in the group. They pulled a chunk of us out and they were training us to, to get, to put us into the advanced classes. And it took months and months. And my parents were very proud of me. I didn't fully understand what was going on and I was doing very well. And then they put us into those classes and I immediately flunked out of all of them. And I was the one kid that got put back in with the general group. I think I just didn't didn't care. I was like, what is this? You know, I, I guess that was the beginning of feeling like this, I'm different, this sort of countercultural inner artist that was coming forth. One thing that strikes me that you said right in the beginning is you decided it was like this decision point that I am an artist. 
you put on the costume, you donned it. I am an artist. And I remember myself being young. I was also an artist. And it was <laughs> my first identity. The first mm -hmm. identity of everyone in the family said, oh, Janae is a little artist. And what even when I went to college later and studied chemical engineering, I dropped out to study photography and yeah. pursue my inner artist. So you continued and you didn't do well in school. You said you started, you started setting that up. So you didn't do well in school. And then your parents mm. were really shocked when you got scholarships. Where? Well, let me go back before we hit okay. the scholarship because there's like this whole middle piece where it was kind of coming of age. Um, and I love what you're saying about this identity as an artist. It's so interesting in our culture where if a kid shows artistic prowess as a child, it's like, wow, my child is an artist. But as they begin to grow up, they, our parents and the culture poo-poo it because you're not going to make a living as an artist. It's a terrible, difficult life. Like, like get your head out of the clouds. It's very interesting. And yet then our parents go, or I say our parents, what I mean is the culture. The culture then it, it glamorizes, you know, Hollywood and stuff. Anyway, this is a different tangent. Let me go back to my coming of age. <laughs> but this is how we hold artists in this society, yeah? So I started sneaking out in middle school. I started experimenting with drugs. And this is in the, the early 90s now, right? So it's the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Um and it's also my coming of age, right? So people are being punished for having sex by being by dying. And I'm starting to just explore what it is to be a sexual being. I um I started experimenting with psychedelics and they opened my my everything. I saw the depth to the universe in a way that I think my sensitive nature almost couldn't handle. I mean I, I dove into it with like a gusto and, you know, it wasn't like I, I was cowering. But thinking back, I think that my young mind, it, it was, it took me deeper than almost my, 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 the barriers of my brain could, could permit. You know what I mean? Um, at the same time, my uncle died of AIDS. I had snuck out to experiment with pot with a friend. I spent the night at his house. He sexually assaulted me. When I told on him, he killed himself. And then soon after, one of my closest friends died in a car accident. And I just crumbled. I didn't feel held by my peers. I didn't feel understood by my parents. I didn't feel like there was anywhere I could go with this psychic pain it's like there was no no infrastructure for my despair and my grief and my just the agony and fear that it all produced and so i started doing some of the more perverse drugs that i won't call medicine stuff like cocaine and heroin that's in such a different category things that are really you know, extracted and synthetic and hack our human biology in a way that doesn't expand our consciousness, but really just dulls our pain, creating more pain. And I spiraled and I ended up in jail. And this was kind of a turning point for me. My parents put me into therapy. I got on antidepressants and I started for the first time being held. Like there was a place to go where somebody had, that was what we were going to talk about. It was welcome, right? 
it started a 20-year descent into, not descent, 20-year relationship with antidepressants, which I'll talk more about because that's part of this past. But it it was where I really claimed my artistic identity as um, going forward into adulthood. And so to come back to to your point, I ended up getting a offered a scholarship to a prestigious art school called the San Francisco Art Institute, a small private school in Russian Hill that very tragically just closed during the pandemic. Um, yeah. And and I think to my parent, my parents were incredibly proud that I had got because with all these terrible grades, they just thought, well, this kid's not going anywhere. And then to see like I was given a, one of the very few scholarships in a school that was primarily there were very few people that were in straight out of high school. Most of the people in this school were adults that had come back to school to to get their bachelor's or master's. So for just a moment here, you applied to scholarships, you applied to school and you got in. What was it in your mind? Were you dedicated and feeling within yourself that your right path at the time was to be an artist? everything in me was was an artist i was like this is who i am at my core and this is all i ever want to do is is creative expression i mean i loved it but i was also lost you know my, it's like i didn't know what it was to be an adult so i didn't know is this what does this look like as an adult especially when i came from such square family you know, my parents went to desk jobs, came home, watched TV, cooked dinner, went to synagogue, went to sleep, did it again, right? It, being an artist, this is something I wasn't shown, this lifestyle. So yes, everything in me wanted to be an artist, but did I know what that meant? No. And as you moved into, you went to school and you started chasing this dream of being yes. an artist. Yes. What were... I mean, it's it's not an easy path. And I think one of the big things that you have to be able to do to be a successful artist is you have to have complete and total confidence in yourself. You have to be able to network and feel good selling yourself. You have to be comfortable with showing your innards to the world. And these are the things that nobody talks about when they're headed on this path to becoming an artist. And, and, and I've so much self-discipline, so yes. much self-discipline, more self-discipline than anybody in any profession could ever need. <laughs> Because nobody, you have to carve out all that time to make that art and to grow as a human so that your art grows and changes, right? Yeah. So yeah. much self-discipline. It, yeah, it's interesting. The path of, there's, of course, that stereotype of the starving artist. And the starving artist is because it's not so much that the passion or the talent isn't there. But the starving artist comes from the person that doesn't want to do that work right it's the same thing coming down could to be. doing that work it could be it could also be that somebody that's dedicated to doing their art and it, you know to be a successful artist well successful i don't want to even use that word but to be an artist that's able to pay their bills with their art right takes more than just talent and it takes more than being somebody who's comfortable selling themselves it takes luck there is a piece that we have no control over. Are you going to be lucky? You've got the talent and you've got the drive. 
You're doing all the right things, but do you have the luck? And if you don't have the luck and you're still dedicated to that path, you will be a starving artist. Mm-hmm. Because this culture is not going to just pay your way, even though they glamorize and deify Hollywood and musicals and certain pieces, you know, the, the arts. They don't support it from the ground up. They just don't. And so you chased, you chased your dream of being an mm-hmm. artist. Mm-hmm. You were making a living. Yeah. So I, okay. So from art school, I I remember being in art school and I was working in the art supply store to to pay for part of my tuition. I didn't get, I I got the biggest scholarship they offered, but it didn't cover everything. And I remember the mailman comes in and he takes a look around and his eyes are sparkly with nostalgia. And he goes, "Ah, I remember the good old days when I used to go here. I freaked out. It was like it had been in the back of my head, like, okay, this is all amazing. This education is so incredible. I'm getting to be around these amazing artists. My art is moving. And how the fuck am I going to turn this into something that pays the bills? And uh, at the same time, my dad was really nervous for me. He was like, you're so talented. I really believe in you. And I just think this is going to be a really difficult life for you. And all of this led me to dropping out, but I didn't have the balls to drop out. Instead, I said, I'm going to take a leave of absence. I'm going to move to the UK. So I moved to the UK. I, I auditioned for a punk band. I ended up getting in this punk band, touring the UK. After a couple of years, I get deported and I land back here in San Francisco. And I picked up a job bartending to try and pay the bills. And this was around the time where I started moving into more of a theater direction, like exploring theater, improv, on-camera acting. And I started to fall in love with this new craft. It was also the time where my addiction started to kind of rear up because all of that childhood pain and all of the fear of not knowing how to really reconcile who I was with this culture that I don't feel like represents me, that hole was still there. You know, and those antidepressants maybe were putting a little bandage over it, but it, it wanted to bleed. It needed to bleed. And there was no place for it to bleed. We don't allow bleeding in this culture, right? And At a certain f- Yeah. yeah. I, I just want to take a quick little like note right here. We talk about the antidepressants and so often it's just like you said, the little bandage, the little band-aid. But it doesn't solve the problems. And and I think that's a big thing that people need to understand with whatever it is that you're doing, whatever you're seeking out to feel better. You want to, of course, it is important to have relief. Absolutely. 100%. And also, it's important to seek out the problem so that you can take care of the problem yes because yeah i'm glad you're saying that that is where the big things can really shift like if we go back to the artist who does not feel worthy does not have the self-esteem to be able to connect to others and make connections and do those things. And it's the same if you're career changing. It's the same in almost every industry. If you want to rise up and if you want to be a leader, all of these things, it's so important that you have the self-worth, that you have the confidence to step forward, to be able to connect with people, even when it's uncomfortable, 
And a lot of people have some stuff in the way that makes it more difficult than it should be. And just stuff can be your superpower and it will be your superpower when you build the capacity to turn towards it and and really sit with it. And that's where the antidepressants come in is we don't all at all points in our life have the capacity and the strength to be able to turn towards ourselves. So I think it's beautiful that we have created this crutch for people that simply don't have the tolerance for their own pain. But at a certain, the, the pain, that doesn't mean the pain goes away. It's right. still, the wound is still there, even though it's numb and it's going to fester. At a certain point, you have to turn towards it or you have to make a commitment to, to honor the bandage and to, and to go the, ra- the route of bandaging it and covering it and not looking at it. I think it's an ultimately a harder route, but to each their own. I mean, I don't want to undermine yeah. the value of being able to numb because the human experience is extraordinarily complex and painful. So I hope anybody who's listening to this that's on antidepressants knows that I don't, I'm not looking down on them. They are a tool. Use them as such. And exactly. there is deeper work to be done and you don't need them forever. Yeah. yeah. So there was a certain point where I, st- I got into a prestigious clown school. I didn't, it's not that I wanted to be a clown. I wanted to, to learn how to do a physical movement and acting. And, and so I, I did a full year of clown school and then another year of mime school. And it was in this time where I was also bartending to support myself where I realized there is no time for the drugs here. Like if I'm working until two in the morning and then I'm waking up at six to start training for a full 12 hour day, it, it, it just sort of squeezed the drugs out. And I, I want to make sure that I don't make it sound simpler than it was because it wasn't actually quite that simple. But I'll give you a little story, which is I was bartending at the time and I wasn't buying drugs and I was committed to this path. But I would go to give someone a hug at the bar. And before I knew it, whoop, into my hand, there's a baggie. And that I couldn't say no to. So I, 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 I made a necklace. It was a big necklace that hung... Uh, right on, on my chest. And it had a drawing of me. It, it actually had a picture of me in clown. And there was a stop sign and it said, stop. I'm on the wagon. Really big. I have to tell you, this necklace was the key to my sobriety because people might, you know, my same people would come up to give me a hug and to put that baggie in my hand. And they saw that and they go, wait, you're on the wagon? I go, yeah, I'm on the wagon. And that kind of, they'd be like, are you sure? Yep, I'm sure. So that was my key to sobriety, A, finding something that was squeezing it out, and B, this necklace. Still on antidepressants, still trying to, to, to heal, but not knowing how, I found my way into my um, solo performance, one-woman shows. So I was writing, performing, touring one-woman shows around the U.S. and Canada, and this was like I had found my craft. I had finally found my home as an artist. You know, I had dabbled in the punk rock band. I dabbled in mixed media and drawing and painting, and finally this solo performance thing was, it was my, it was my thing. It, it, it drew on all my skills that I had gathered over the years. And in I found that there was a healing in standing in front of an audience and telling my story. But at this time, I I started to develop a following of people who wanted to do what I was doing. And a small percentage of them were also 
actors. So we were working on advanced acting skills and presentation skills and movement and that. But a large percentage of the people that were coming to me were average people who just wanted to tell their story, who wanted to stand in front of an audience and lay bare some of the biggest stories of their life. And what are those stories that we want to tell? It's like the toughest thing that happened that we overcame, right? That's the, that's right. the whole thing of this podcast, right? What did you overcome to get you to where you are right now? We all have it. This is the superpower I was talking about. And I became really obsessed with the power of story to heal. And I, I, and I, I made it my mission. I want to find a way to, to even more be able to work with story with clients for healing purposes. So I started taking psychology classes, but it's like, oh, I don't want to be a therapist. I got certified as a life coach, but that didn't quite satisfy me. And all this time, I'm still bartending and I'm in this craft. And I have to tell you, it is a lonely craft. It takes a ton of self-discipline. You're home all day working, whether you're rehearsing or you're writing a new show, you're selling yourself. And it's lonely being on the road, like really lonely. I'm not really cut out for touring. And the worst part is these, these theaters, the contracts that they give their artists are incredibly exploitative. Like there's just very little money that's given to the artist. So you're performing, you're under the lights, you've got a sold out audience and you're walking with bullshit money. And it just started to, that and the fact that it, bartending was me basically dealing poison to people, watching them just poison themselves and bandage that hole with more toxins. It was eating away at my soul. And I started spinning my wheels like, how can I get out of this? I don't know what to do. But it's like, at the same time, I'd finally gotten to the place where I was doing what I'd always wanted to do. I was a touring artist where people were coming to me and seeking me out and booking me and wanting me to teach them. And the pandemic, right? COVID hits. Yeah. And the I know so many of my stories that everyone comes on here. We have this <laughs> and then COVID hit. But leading up to that, it sounds like you were starting to think about it. Like, how oh, do I, I get out of out. this? How do I do this? What am I like? What are the things that are coming up here for you in this? Because I think this is really important. A lot of people, whatever career they're in, whatever transition they're in, there is thoughts and stuff that runs through your mind long before you make the change. You know, one of my favorite quotes is when Tony Robbins says that people change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. And the pandemic flipped a lot of stuff on end. So it made that possible for a lot of people. But leading up to that, what were the things that you were telling yourselves about why maybe you couldn't just drop it and do something else? What were the fears? What were the things that went through your mind during that time? Oh, I wanted to drop it and do something else. Uh, I mean, not the art. The art, I was like, I am an artist. This is who I am. You know, I've got it. There's just got to be something that I'm missing. You know, I just have, I just have to crack the code. I got to figure it out. Or then I would vacillate between that. I'm just a piece of shit. Like I'm just a failure. All of this training, all of these years for what? Just so you could march to the beat of your own drummer, Jill. You're just a loser. If you would have gone and done what everybody else did and gone to college and gotten a proper degree in something, you'd be in a house right now. You'd be with a stable partner. You would have a garden. Like you're never going to get anywhere because look, now you're in your late 30s and and this is what it is, you know? And 
especially the bartending was the worst part because there was nothing about that that I loved anymore. I'd done it for 20 years at this point. And I'd worked at like probably 30 different bars and clubs in San Francisco. I mean, that's practically every place there is, right? <laughs> and I, I kept telling every, I kept telling myself, you know, you're a smart girl. You, I have tons of things that I'm interested in. Why can I not figure out how to make a living at any of these? And I did. I, I actually went down this road of trying to become a presentation skills trainer for corporations. And I did these big corporate interviews. And I, I did, you wouldn't believe these interviews were like multi-stage where I had to film myself teaching a presentation, doing a presentation and teaching people how to do public speaking skills to a group of people. So it was insane. And then I would get there and I'd be one of the final people. And I, and they'd be like, sorry, we, we went with the other choice. And I just felt like I'm a smart person. If I could figure out, if there was something else out there for me to do, I would have figured it out. The fact that I haven't figured it out, it's not going to happen for me. Like, this is it. Like you, you know, those, those big moments under the, under the hot lights on the stage, that was your kind of top. You're just going to be this sort of faded out, sold out old lady who uh, you, is working at a bar, at a shitty dive bar, you know? But you I don't want to, I'm not knocking other bartenders. I think it is yeah. a noble industry for people who love doing it. They are hard workers. I just want to be clear about that. It just was not my purpose. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I get that. I get that. I bartended for many years myself. That's right. I, I understand the place where you're trying to do something bigger and grander in life and where you are is not working with that it's not in alignment or it's no longer in alignment and i'm poisoning so, people i'm poisoning yeah. like i don't i've never believed in alcohol i've always thought it was poison and here i am just inflicting it on all of these poor people that's what it felt like it was out of integrity with who i was at that point yeah yeah. And, and I want to I want to just quickly say to everybody out there that uses alcohol as because I've definitely used it as a way to move through. And I think a lot of addiction in general. I want you all to know that. I'm so glad that you're still here because sometimes those tools are the tools that get you to fight another day. And to show up until you find the thing that actually works for your healings. Absolutely. Okay. So you're at this place where you're unhappy. You can't so figure unhappy. out what it is that you're to do. And it, it sounds like you were almost at this giving up point. Does that sound oh, yeah. correct? Yeah. I was in a total depression. Yeah, I would. I, I got a dog and I would just go to the dog park all day, every day. I didn't want to write another show. I was just so depressed. And I would just, I would, I, I had whittled down my bartending to just one or two shifts a week because I just couldn't stand it anymore. And when COVID hit, it was like a joke, Jenea, because two worst jobs to have during a pandemic are a bartender and a a traveling performer. So that right. just, right? So so I was, there was no way for me to continue doing either one. It was taken away from me. And then I went into, oh shit. And there was also a wave of relief, but I thought, I, I, I in some ways I prayed that the pandemic would never end. 
<laughs> at that moment, yeah. when it began, when it began, I thought this is a sick day that might go on like for a while. Get me out of this conundrum of having well, to find and, something. Yeah. And, and one of the things, though, that I think is really important that a lot of people didn't really think about when the pandemic came is, and you just said it so eloquently, there was this, oh, shit moment, but there was also this relief. And I think that relief gave people enough breath to start to really look at what it is they're doing for a living and how they're living their life. Is it really in alignment with who they are born to be? So you had this breath. And mm-hmm. what was the thing that shifted you to have more clarity about where you want to go? Yeah. So I had a friend who was like, Jill, I'm working with a psychedelic guide. I was like, a psychedelic what? She was like, yeah. And I was like, well, I've done psychedelics. I've done plenty of psychedelics. She's like, this is different. This is being held in a container where you're really working on something. And I was like, yeah. I I feel like I've reached my end. Like I'd been in therapy for decades. I've tried everything. So I went to my parents who had bailed me out of jail, who had seen me on this path. And I said, I want to work with a psychedelic guide. I think this is the answer for me, but I, I don't know. Can I borrow some money? And they lent me some money and I, and I worked with this person and in the very first journey, I saw with tremendous clarity. And what I was hoping for was just some healing, right? right? What I got was I saw my entire life. I saw everything that was an issue for me. And then I saw laid on top of it, like almost cellophane, the story I had put on it. And then I saw what it was like if I peeled it back. And there was just the event, just the raw facts of the event. And then the story with all the meaning and the pain and the suffering or the glory or the ego, whatever it was. And I was, every cell of my body was like, this is it. This is the way that I want to work with story, with people's inner narratives, with my own inner narrative. And from that moment forward, Jenea, this sounds like a cliche, but everywhere I looked, there was just yeses. It was like I had stepped, I was right next to the path of yes. And I thought that I was stuck in this valley of no forever, but it was literally just one little tiny step. And I was suddenly in the flow of life and doors just opened. I got into multiple trainings that were underground, experiential, deep trainings to pursue this path. And my, and I, I started taking clients and my business just in front of me. So I want to take a couple notes here. And first of all, that place of story, you had been working with story in many different levels. You had been helping people hone their own stories. And then to really have it be revealed to you this, like, oh, our life is just the story that we make it and the meaning. And it's, So what the two things I want to say is for people that don't really understand, because not really everybody understands that we are meaning making machines and your experience of your life is the story you put around an event. And so this is a really simple example. 
you run a marathon and you come in second. Now, one person might be pissed off and be like, fuck, I lost. I'm a loser. And they might be so mad and they feel all this like rage and pain and upsetness in their body. And they're just angry and that it's the worst thing ever. Another person might be like, oh, my goodness, I like came in second. I was so excited that I didn't even know that I could complete a thing and I came in second and there's still room to grow. And they have a totally different experience. But the fact is that they came in second. And another person might run marathons all the time and they are just like, okay, I came in second. It's just factual and it is neutral in emotion. So our experience and the pain or excitement that we feel has so much to do with the story that we're making of an event. And now the other piece that I want to highlight And I think this is what is so key, especially in what I do when you're opening up the path of what is really right and true, how you get to be the wolf and be who you were born to be, do what you were born to do is in some ways you were doing just that. And you only needed a little pivot to actually open the doors and have it all come to fruition in a way that really resonated with you. And I had a podcast guest a little while ago, Matthew, and it was about being on the right path. And he always, he talks about that inner voice guidance of just knowing how to listen to it. And that if you stay on the path and you keep going, even when it doesn't make sense, that things will start to work out for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, in this, I love what you're speaking to around this tiny little pivot because I see my clients when they come in and they sit in that chair across from me and they feel stuck, completely and totally stuck in their lives. And I see when, they, when that stuckness shifts with them, which it often does in the work that we do together, and it's profound. And it's also a tiny pivot. We feel like we're so, when we, when we feel stuck, we feel so far away from whatever it is, from finding it. It's just one little step, typically. And that's part of the story that we tell, the stuckness. I'm stuck. Rather, another person could say, well, you're, what I see is you're in transition and you're just about to find the thing, right? Two different stories about the same thing. But how... All my life, people were telling me, just try to shift your story, Jill. Be more positive. Something about this work, doing this medicine, you're able to really see it. You not just see it, it's in your bones. You know, and here I was getting, this was like the culmination of my whole life. All my suffering suddenly made sense. This is my medicine for others. I've been a healer. That was why I was so sensitive. That's why I was so different. That's where the creativity is going to come from. When I'm, when I'm working with a client, there's tons of creativity coming forward. When I'm leading a group ceremony, the performer in me gets to come forward. I sing to them, right? Everything came together and I got to hold this medicine, this sacred transformational medicine that was given to us by, by our earth, by our planet. Get to hold it in an intentional ceremonial way. Not this one and done bullshit. You know, if only when I was growing up, I had had that container holding me when I was experimenting with some of these 
substances, but the culture at that time wouldn't allow it. There was nobody I could talk to about it. I couldn't tell my parents I want to intentionally experiment with psychedelics. No. But now the culture is slowly starting to shift. Mm-hmm. And people are coming to me from all over the country, from some of the most unlikely places, because we want to heal together. And we've tried everything, some of us. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And then one of the things, so from a scientific, for those of you that are into the science, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's talk science. What, ha- what happens when you take psychedelics is it it sh- it dampens down your default mode network, and your default mode network is sort of the circuit. It's the circuit that has you draw conclusions about the world and everything else based on what you've seen, because your your mind, your unconscious mind, your subconscious mind is taking in 11 million bits of information per second, but you are only consciously aware of 60 to 120 of those bits. And so the answers are always there for you, except your brain is filtering based on the pa- your past experiences. And mm-hmm. so when you work with a coach, when you have a mind shift aha moment, when you work with psychedelics, uh, what is happening is you're expanding the view of what you are aware of out of that 11 million bits of information. That's a little heady for you science people. Good this, for the science so this, people. This is, <laughs> if this is right. regular consciousness, this is expandedness. It's all right. it's there right now. You just can't see it from where you're sitting. Yeah. And, and yeah. so... You know, again, for those of you that have never done the psychedelics or never want to, you can have a similar pivot when somebody says something to you and it leads to this aha, you're like, whoa, I never thought of it like that. And from that moment on, your perspective, the meaning, the story you're making of things shifts. And that's a beautiful thing. And that is what the psychedelic journey does for a lot of people, but maybe a little bit bigger and a lot more of it, which again is why it's important to have an integration coach to help you unpack all of that. So speaking of that, Jill, do you want to share with us how people could potentially have access to resources and all of those things. You're cutting out a bit. Ah. Cutting out a bit. I think you're asking me to share how they can reach me. Is that? I am asking you to share, yeah, the resources and how they can reach you. All of that good stuff. Oh, you're freezing. No, Well, we can hold the space. Well, I'll talk until it looks like your internet is being a little iffy. Oh, back. I think you're coming back? back. She's back, everybody. Okay, great. She's yeah. back. She's back. <laughs> she- okay, so we were going to share resources and all the things. Fantastic. Yeah. If you would like resources, I have so many. I have an email that I can give you. 
reach out to me. Email me at jillvice at protonmail.com. That's J-I-L-L-V-I-C-E at protonmail, P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com. I don't have a website because the nature of this work. It's not something that I can really do right now, but I am. I would love to support people who are interested in stepping onto this path, in learning more. I'd love to send them some resources. So reach out to me and we can get the conversation going and I can tell you other ways that we can communicate and take it from there. I love this. I love this. And for those of you that are looking to actually land into a new dream, a dream because you know deep in your heart what you're doing is not quite the right fit for you anymore. If you are ready to have a conversation to see what that would entail, you can reach out to me. Go to elevatebookacall.com. You can book a call with me. It's just a conversation. We can have a conversation and see if my system is a good fit for you. And so if all of this, any of this sounds interesting to you, open up your browser right now because, you know, sometimes we forget. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if you're looking to change careers, go to elevatebookacall.com. And if you're curious about more of the psychedelic journey and the information that's available and just connecting with Jill, go to jillvice at protonmail.com. And Jill, now, is there something else you would like to really share with the listeners or maybe a piece of advice you would have given your younger self? Anything else that you would like to share? Yeah, I think it's you can turn towards yourself in any way. The This work, this psychedelic work, it's just about you having a deep conversation with your innermost self. And there are many, many ways to access that self. It doesn't have to be through psychedelic medicine. It could be through flow state. It could be through community. It could be through song. It can be through certain rituals. It could be through exercise, through sex. I mean, there are so many meditation. There's so many ways to get in. They're just different entry points to the same place, right? Whether you do ayahuasca, whether you do psilocybin, whether you do MDMA, meditation, it's all just different doors to the same place. So just keep opening the doors and keep turning towards yourself. I want to just finish my story by saying, you know, my parents still live in Texas and I visit them from time to time and they're proud of what I'm doing, that they are now marketing me to their friends and their community to say, if anybody's looking for a psychedelic guide out here, Jill is doing really meaningful, impactful work. And that feels so good to kind of come full circle with the relationship to these these medicines, with my relationship to my, to my family and to making my family proud, being me and being this different person. And that's, and that's what being the wolf is really all about. And I think one thing that you just touched on that is such a big piece of my theory and why this be the wolf concept is so important to me. When we talk about the Yellowstone wolves and how they did nothing but be who they were born to be and their presence 
and they're doing what they were born to do, recalibrated the ecosystem. Mm. And so when you say to me that your parents are marketing you to people in their community, (laughs) it is such that thing where people like you, people like myself, by living true to who who we are, no matter how crazy our journey was to get here, that we get to be part of the recalibration of this ecosystem. And in absolutely, that, I thank you for. Aho. Aho. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and watching. And thank you, Jill, for sharing your story, your spirit, your heart. Such a treat to be and, here, Janea. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Everybody, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.